Hi, I'm Brian Norcross, along with Luke Doris, and this is podcast number 17 of Hurricane Season 2020 and number 55 in our series. We're trying to wind down the hurricane season, Luke, but <laughs> not quite. What? Yeah, we got maybe a little breather here, but it may not last very long, right? It may not. We'll talk about that in a second. All right, today we're going to talk with Beth McElroy, who's the Director of Emergency Management at the South Florida Water Management District. I'm betting that most people that live here don't know much about the South Florida Water Management District, but this is the organization that's tasked with essentially keeping South Florida livable in spite of the fact that we live in a place that gets very heavy rainfall, including from hurricanes, and would be very, very prone to flooding if it wasn't for the complex system they run, and they do lots of other things too. The water in the canals and the water table itself are actually managed out of an office in West Palm Beach. I mean, you know, when I first came here, I certainly didn't know that, and I bet that uh, most folks living here don't know that. So we're going to learn about that and how they handle day-to-day operations and what they do when a hurricane comes along and uh, other extreme events. Some 1,700 people work at that organization, so it's big, and it's one of the biggest of its kind in the country. We'll talk to Beth McElroy about that in just a few minutes. We're recording this podcast on Wednesday, October 14th, 2020. If you're listening at some point in the future, tune in to Channel 10 in South Florida, of course, for Local 10 News, or on Local10.com. You can always watch Local 10 News live and free there on Local10.com. And for hurricane information, download the Max Tracker Hurricane app or the Local 10 Weather app for local weather information. Okay, Luke, so east of the islands, there's this circulation. It's actually obvious circulation on the satellite, although it's kind of obvious because the upper winds are ripping all the the thunderstorms off to the east so we can see the circulation, uh, but it can't organize its thunderstorms around the center uh, because of those upper winds, and the models have actually been good at uh, predicting the upper winds so far. Yeah, good, and you're right. It's a, it's a shredded apart, but I tell you, Yesterday, it was trying to make a go of it for a few minutes. It was. Uh, yes, it, it was trying to wrap, and I thought, this thing's going to do a 2020 on us, <laughs> and we're going to get a tropical depression out of this, but it, it didn't It didn't last. And uh, you've got a circulation. You've got your storms. They're not connected. Thus, you don't have a tropical system, and uh, it's probably going to continue that way. So not much of a concern there. So uh, in making the South Florida forecast, uh, did you take this system into account, or do you think it's all going to get sort of shunted off to the south and the east? It looks like it misses us at this point, and it gets complex because you have that, and then you've got a front moving in from the north, and how do these two interplay? Mm-hmm. You know, Will that front clear? Will it not? Um, but most likely, it doesn't have a huge impact on us. It didn't look like to me this morning. Yeah, the energy uh, with it, yeah, it comes uh, west, although it gets very diffuse, and then you have this thing in the southwestern Caribbean. So the long-range computer models show a favorable pattern for tropical development, and some of the models actually develop, you know, significant storms out of it, but more than a week out. And so we don't put a lot of stock in actually what they develop, but we do look at trends in the weather pattern. And the pattern does look conducive for uh, tropical development. And there is a weak area of low pressure or circulation over Central America, uh, kind of loosely called the Central American gyre, although it's a weak version of what can be a quite robust uh, circulation Uh, called the gyre so this disturbance comes along and it kind of gets mixed up in that maybe it's an ingredient in the stew um, over there of various factors Um, but i guess all we can think about that is you know that's where bad storms come from this time of year and so we have to kind of watch that It's, it's really not in your forecast yet right no, it's outside the range, but confidence is oddly high that something, something, we don't know what, we don't know where it'll go, but something will probably come from that. There's a couple things. Uh, you've got the favorable upper level winds. You've got, it looks like the models are putting out, you know, surface low pressure uh, is developing there. You've got that broad circulation that's trying to come off of South America. And there is a, an, what's called the Madden-Julian oscillation, this just general favorable rising motion in the atmosphere that can help spawn these things. So you get a lot of ingredients that are coming together there and also maybe the subtropical Atlantic too. So that's another zone. These are just zones to watch right now, but Mm -hmm. uh, we'll we'll be keeping close eye on both of those. We're not done yet. The subtropical Atlantic kind of off 
think off Jacksonville or something, way off, way out there. There's yeah. something else might develop. Yeah, this thing um, in the Southern Caribbean, I think it's a Kelvin wave that's supposed to be uh, coming along. A Kelvin wave, another one of those disturbances like the Madden-Julian oscillation that goes through the, the atmosphere that can enhance or suppress uh, development uh, of systems. So, so uh, anyway, just uh, keep it on your calendar. Pencil it in for next week to pay attention to what's going on uh, in the tropics because something annoying uh, might indeed develop. But, of course, we'll stay on top of that uh, on Local 10. All right, let's uh, bring in Director of Emergency Management at the South Florida Water Management District in West Palm Beach, Beth McElroy. Hi, Beth. Nice to meet you. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So it seems to me that you work for one of the most consequential agencies that affects how we live in South Florida, that most people have never heard of. So let's go back to the beginning of what today is the South Florida Water Management District. How and why did it get started? Uh, so we started a long time ago. We started uh, in 1940, after 1947. Uh, there was, prior to 1947, there was two years of drought. And then in 1947, the wet season was very wet. We had an excessive amount of rainfall. Two hurricanes, then, actually, yeah. And then we had hurricanes. Right. Uh, one of those hurricanes, as you know, was very devastating to the Glades mm. area. There was a pretty famous report that Congress wrote. It had a picture of a, a cow. I don't know. I'm sure you've seen it. Um, the cow was crying. It was a, a drawing. And uh, in 1948, the U.S. Congress uh, developed legislation that, that established what was called it then the Central and Southern Florida Flood Control District and began a series of uh, public works, uh, civic um, construction by the Army Corps of Engineers. In 1949, the Florida legislature then created the Central and Southern Florida Flood Control District, uh, and we became our own uh, body then. And we functioned under that name until 1972, when the Florida legislature then passed a statute uh, that created all of the water management districts in the state of Florida. And at that point, we were renamed from the Central and Southern Florida Flood Control District to the South Florida Water Management District. And there are four other regional water management districts within the state. So, so just to be clear, that's really to control flooding. That's really what you're about. That, right? was our primary, that was our original primary mission. We, we do have some other stuff that I'd be happy to talk about. Um, but yes, flood control. So we manage uh, 16 counties from Orlando south through Monroe. We have 31% of the land use, uh, the land mass of the state of Florida. And uh, we serve 41% of the state's population. So about 8.7 million uh, people um, rely on us uh, as flood control. Okay, so the agency was created to control flooding, but it seems more complicated and sophisticated than, than just that. So has the area covered by the South Florida Water Management District grown over time? Uh, no, the boundaries um, are the same. And it's I'm, I'm glad you asked that because it's important to note that the boundaries of the water management districts are not jurisdictional like counties and cities. They're hydrological because water management does what water's going to do. So um, they are designed by uh, hydrological uh, boundaries. So no, they, they have not changed. In other words, rivers and lakes and so forth. So how does the South Florida Water Management District relate to Lake Okeechobee and the Army Corps of Engineers, which is responsible for the Hoover Dyke on the south side of the lake and all the sophisticated systems that are in place to manage water in that huge lake? So the, the water management district, um, a lot of folks probably don't know this until they, they might see our signs. The, the lake is managed by the Army Corps of Engineers, as you know, mm -hmm. but the surrounding system is ours. Uh, we have 2,200 miles of canals. We have 2,100 miles of levees and berms, uh, 778 water control structures. Uh, and all of that obviously ties to you know, impacts how the lake is managed. So the, the lake has 
if you will, ranges of operation, the high level, high range what they, and, and low ranges. And the core refers to them as uh, beneficial use subbands. And when uh, they, and they fluctuate as you would expect, wet season, the lake gets higher, dry season, the lake gets lower. When that beneficial use subband, when the lake drops below that level, so when we're in a dry conditions or a drought, the core will seek input from our agency with regard to water supply. And uh, I, I think it's important to note that we, although we talk about flood control, the flip side of what the district does is also engages in water supply. So uh, aquifers, and, and that's, and I just needed to point that out because mm -hmm. uh, that goes to lake management. So when that, when the lake dips below a certain level, um, the core will ask us for input about releases to make sure that our communities, when it goes above that, when we have high water, mm -hmm. they make the decisions to release water um, to relieve pressure on the dike. So that that's when they send water out the Caloosahatchee or they send it over toward uh, Port St. Lucie through the, yep. the canal there. Yep. So, but we, I just, I want to make, uh, make sure that folks are aware that we just don't coordinate with the core during those times. We are in communication with them weekly. So we have uh, conference calls, meetings, they, we are in constant coordination with the core, whether it's normal operations or those uh, beneficial use subbands are exceeded in either direction. See, I that think that most people would be surprised to know that when you look at South Florida from an airplane, that essentially all of that water that you see from Lake Okeechobee and in those canals and in those retention areas and all that is managed. Right. It's uh, I mean, Absolutely. isn't that such a that's a really when you think about it, an unbelievable thing that this entire region has evolved to where this very fundamental resource that we all live with and rely on mm -hmm. is a managed resource. I, I don't I don't think that's a well understood concept. It's not. And, uh, you know, when I've given presentations in the past to other groups, you know, when you put it in the context of public works, I think we're the largest public works organization east of the Mississippi River and probably one of the top five in the United States. Mm -hmm. So in terms of uh, the amount of resources, uh, as a matter of fact, we've had um, MOUs with the Netherlands to exchange information on the best practices for flood control and water management. So, you know, even the, even the Dutch recognize uh, the magnitude of what we do. Yeah, and they know a little something about managing water. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. The whole country's underwater. Well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It just makes you wonder, too, what would it look like without you guys? What, <laughs> I mean, where it wouldn't be a South Florida as we know it. So that's remarkable. Yeah. But uh, let's talk about canals for a second. We have all these canals sure. here in South Florida, especially. And when you say or announce that you're going to lower the water level in the canals in advance of, let's say, a hurricane, what exactly does that mean? Okay, so if you'll just indulge me for a minute, because I'm going to explain a, a part of our system that I think a lot of your listeners, you know, again, may not understand, um, and it, it'll under, you'll, it'll explain what we do when we lower canals. So regional flood control in South Florida Water Management District is three tiered. You, if you imagine a highway system, for example, you have the interstate and the turnpike that you have secondary roads like state roads, and then you have your neighborhood roads. So neighborhood roads go into state roads, state roads then go into I-95 and the turnpike. And water management uh, for us is exactly the same way. It's a three-tiered system. So we are the I-95 and the turnpike of water management. The, the secondary canals um, that maybe your listeners may you know, live in a special taxing district or their counties or cities may manage their, their storm sewers, uh, drain into our system and then HOAs and neighborhoods would drain into those systems. Does, does that, I just said sort of the really reader's digest version of the three tiered system. So when we lower canals, when we lower our canals, what we're doing is we're creating capacity. So we're sort of making room on I-95 in the turnpike to take traffic onto those roads. So when we lower our canals, 
uh, we're creating capacity to allow those secondary districts who are collecting water from their HOAs or neighborhoods to drain into our system. So during normal, during normal operations, we maintain the canals at a certain level for, for other reasons. Um, but when we anticipate there's gonna be a lot of rainfall, whether it's a storm or just a heavy rain event, um, our water managers will look at that and they will bring our canal levels down by opening gates and discharging water to make capacity to receive water from the secondary and tertiary systems that are operated by other folks. Uh, so a preemptive pre strike. Yes. Yeah. So are they all lowered at once? And are is it like a physical process with knobs and buttons or is it computer controlled electronically? How does that work? So we have, it's pretty sophisticated. Uh, and again, I, I think it would be surprising to a lot of folks um, to know that. Uh, we have a SCADA system with supervisory control uh, and data acquisition. So a lot of public works organizations use similar. Um, it's, we control about 50% of our structures remotely through our uh, control center in West Palm Beach. Um, a good portion of what we control remotely is automated. So our water managers who are engineers, uh, they are all been doing civil engineering for a long time, will program our SCADA system to maintain the canals in our system at a certain level. So no, not all the canals in all the areas are controlled at the same time because of the different hydrology of, of the basins throughout the South Florida Water Management District. Um, there's a portion of our system that uh, is not automated, but we can still acquire and look at that data and our water managers will then issue a manual control. And then there's a third component where it's, it's entirely manual. We, we will get system readings, need to make a change, and we'll call out uh, folks from our field station to go out and make those changes. But it's all depending upon, uh, you know, you can have uh, the basins in the northern part of our district very, very wet, and then you could have maybe the basins in the southern part of our district not so wet, so we don't want to drain the whole system. So they will look at uh, those various basins and make those adjustments. But it's it's uh, it's very technical. As a matter of fact, we have our own microwave system, um, so that you know if if telecommunication goes down in the region, uh, we still operate. Uh, our system is operated 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, just like 911. We are the nerve center of water management, so uh, it, it cannot go down. Um, an interesting fact about uh, our system is after Hurricane Andrew, when there was no telephone system, our microwave tower in, in Homestead was functional, and uh, FEMA used that location as uh, one of the few areas that had telephone connectivity because of the robust uh, construction of our communication system, our, our towers are constructed to withstand Category 5 storms. Yeah, that must be built uh, pretty solid because not many towers <laughs> survived yeah. In, yeah. in South Dade. And when you say a uh, one of your structures, uh, I take it you mean one of these dams of people that live along canals, which a lot of people in South Florida cross canals all the time when they go in and out of their neighborhoods. Uh, and they might look one direction or the other and, right. and see a, a structure across the canal. That's what you're talking about right, in right. terms of controlling whether the water flows or does not flow past that structure? So we, we have a variety of infrastructure and uh, flood control gates, which is what you're referring to there. And uh, they're along the coast, they're inland, they're everywhere. We have pump stations as well. So that physically can move water. Um, we're not just, we don't just rely on gravity. In fact, that's what kind of makes our water management district a little bit unique is that we, are not just a gravity system. So there's all kinds of structures, but the, the flood control structures that you are referencing are the most are one of the most common. Uh, and then we have pump stations um, that can be small in size to ones that are very large that were constructed early on by the core. Um, some of them can move billions and billions of gallons within a 24 hour period if they were operating full capacity. 
So how does the water level in the canals and the rivers across South Florida relate to the general water table that's under the land? That's a great question. So um, it's a really delicate balance, almost like a a dance, if you will. Um, We will keep the water table, uh, the water levels high in the canal, uh, even during the wet season. And, And some of that relates to keeping pressure for saltwater intrusion, which mm-hmm. is another issue that we, mm-hmm. we grapple with. Um, and then when we prepare for a storm or heavy rain event, we'll lower those canals as we discussed to, to, mm-hmm. to have capacity. And that's during uh, our wet season or flood season. On the flip side of that, in the dry season or when, or when even when just conditions are dry, um, we maintain the canals at a higher level to uh, make sure we have water supply, uh, water conservation, and to recharge the aquifer. So, mm-hmm. you know, as you know, a lot of the water that South Floridians rely on, uh, you know, come from not just groundwater, but the aquifer. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a very delicate balance because, you know, some folks wonder, well, why don't you just lower the canals during wet season and leave them in low range? And that creates a pressure issue for saltwater intrusion. So we'll lower the canals, get the water out of the, the, the neighborhoods to control flooding. And then once we the things get back to normal, we try to bring those canal levels back up so that we can you know, maintain a, a good balance on that water table and the pressure that's in the system. But just in a neighborhood, you know, some very low-lying neighborhoods, Sometimes you have a sense after a heavy rain event that the water just doesn't drain because the water table itself is elevated, especially down in South Dade, for example, Correct. right? The ele- and so when, when you lower and raise the canals, you are essentially lower and raising the water table to some degree, aren't you? Isn't that, aren't they connected somehow? Ground saturation. So, yeah. um, you know, when you, when you look at topography from south of Lake Okeechobee, and I, I don't recall the exact number data i i could talk to some of our hydrologists but the slope of the land it, it's it's very slight it's mm-hmm. you know a couple of feet maybe over miles and miles and miles mm-hmm. so uh the yeah the, the the water um doesn't have any place to go if the ground is saturated uh so that just leaves us being able to push it out to tide and there's only so much it's like water through a garden hose. doesn't matter how much you have the spigot turned on, your hose can only move so much water. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that's why I think early in the season when the ground, when the water table is low and we get rain, it seems to go away fast. But later in the season, if the ground is saturated, the, you know, the water isn't not going to seep through the canal into the water table. So it, it can it can definitely... Uh, have an interplay. And how do the tides, like the, when we have a king tide, like we're going to have here in the next uh, week or two, how, does that affect uh, the water tables in general, the freshwater part of the, the system, or are they totally separate on either side of the dam? Uh, I'm going to say yes and no. <laughs> Again, um, it's, it, so with the tides, uh, the the our flood control structures play a part in that saltwater intrusion sort of aspect. So when the, the, all of our coastal structures are automated and they, they are constantly sensing, you know, the headwater side and the tailwater side, or the upstream side and the downstream side of our structures. Mm-hmm. And when the tide starts to get high, the, it, it starts, the sensors uh, pick up that, that the, the pressure is equalizing on either side of those structures. And so the gates will close to make sure that that salt water isn't coming up our freshwater canals. Um, so, you know, when the tide gets lower, then we have more ability to uh, release water if we need to. If we don't, obviously, we're, we don't want to just release fresh water out, especially if we get, as, as now we're getting into the, the dry season, uh, we don't want to make. We want to make sure we're not just discharging tons of fresh water. But so the tide not, really doesn't affect the, the water level in the canals, so to so to speak, and the water table. Uh, not the water so, table. It, mm-hmm. It's more. 
for well field management. So mm -hmm. right. making sure yeah. that we don't have saltwater intrusion into our well fields. Right. Okay, yeah. Beth, I'm Yeah. Sorry, but it's probably a naive question, but I'm just trying to no. get I'm trying to get my mind around the engineering of all this because you were talking about uh, lowering the canals and you said push against the tide. And I'm thinking you're putting water out into the tide, into the ocean. Whenever I go fish in the canals, I watch the tide come in and out. What's the process? How does how do, do you just pump water out against the tide or is it going up to Lake Okeechobee to be stored if you need to lower the canal levels? I'm just trying to understand that that part of it. So. No, we can't push water that far from the coast from the coast into Lake Okeechobee. Um, mo most of most of our system on the coast is gravity. So, uh, you know, as the tides fluctuate, it uh, impacts how much water we can send. We do have a few areas in the, I believe, Broward area, uh, and it was a result of the known the year that we had the no name storms. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a couple of areas where we can actually pump water out regardless of where the tide is. And we, we do that sort of in extreme circumstances, if you will, um, just because there's the amount of population and the amount of runoff gravity alone is not going to take care of that. Um, but you know, we're very dependent on, you know, what the level of the, the ocean is as to how we can move water out to tide. If there's more water in our system and the tide is low, we open some gates to let some water out uh, if that's what the water managers determine that we need to do. So, you know, um, we're kind of reliant on mother nature and the engineering of mother nature uh, to, to some extent, but in some areas, you know, we've had to build some infrastructure that kind of artificially pushes it out that way. You know, the, the, the fresh water coming into the lake uh, mostly comes in from the north. You know, Florida sort of drains or, or from uh, the central Florida area drains into the lake. So sometimes a lot of the lake rise that you see isn't direct rain over the lake. It's coming from central Florida and then drains into where we're at. And then the Corps would obviously uh, operate the lake according to their regulation schedule uh, to make sure that there's not too much water in the lake, but enough for water supply. So we don't really have a lot of structures where we push water out. Um, we look at tidal schedules, uh, tidal cycles, and uh, the capacity in the system. Okay. Um, so engineering calculations, not so much engineering um, pushing pumps. But we do okay. have a couple of areas in Broward where we do physically push the water if we need to. So tell me about you and, and your role as an emergency manager for the South Florida Water Management District. What is it that you do exactly? <laughs> so uh, when we have storms or anything that threatens the operation of the district, it could be just even a heavy rain event uh, or something. I. Uh, we'll activate our emergency operations center. So we, like the counties, and a lot of people don't know this, but we have a full emergency operations center located in the same wing of our operations control room, hearted for Category 5 storm. Um, but as you know, that could be such a small portion of my time because we don't activate very often. But it's everything else throughout the year. So we do training just like the counties and the state does. We do. We have an annual hurricane exercise that we fully activate our emergency operations center. I think what makes the district and what I do kind of unique is during the, the year, um, you have folks that are engineers and they're scientists and they're heavy equipment operators and they're doing things like restoring the Everglades and building magnificent infrastructure and they're doing all kinds of things to keep the, the system going. And we have an organizational structure that works for that. So water supply, flood control, ecosystem restoration. But when we have an emergency, uh, we transition to a federal standard called the National Incident Management System. Uh, it's, you're probably familiar with it dealing with the counties. We operate the same way. And so these folks that are doing all these other things throughout the year need to immediately transition 
to their emergency role, whether it's in operations, logistics, planning, finance, incident command, to function. And I train and develop emergency operations plans and do all that those things throughout the year because you, it, it's perishable skill. You know, people need to understand the technology and how that decision-making process happens. And so uh, throughout the year, that's what I do. And, you know, it's relationship building. We have federal partners, state, local partners, and we are constantly interacting with them and, and making sure that our plans, uh, you know, help them, that we can uh, work together well, that folks understand uh, what they're, how the decision-making and what our capabilities are. So. There's the 5%, I guess, adrenaline of the of activating the Emergency Operations Center, and the other 95% of it is uh, is preparation, training, exercises, networking, relationship building. So when a hurricane is threatening and you, you're going to activate the Emergency Operations Center, what, what exactly does activating mean? What, what are you doing then that you're not doing on a, a normal day? Uh we work with, we have full two, two full-time meteorologists. Uh, so we are usually uh, engaging with them uh, pretty much every time a, a hurricane advisory comes out. You know, we don't recreate our own hurricane forecast. We obviously use what the Hurricane Center does, but we take that information and translate it into how does that impact our operations? Where do we need to lower canals? Where do we need to pre-stage equipment? Do we need to move some of our equipment out of impacted areas uh, so that we can have it available at once the storm passes? Topping off fuel. Uh, we have coordination calls with all of our secondary drainage districts. So as we talked about earlier, we have those secondary systems and uh, they need to understand what we're doing and we need to understand what their needs are. We start activating our emergency purchasing contracts uh, to make sure that we can top off all of our fuel. Um, we start pretty much doing a lot of what you see the counties and the state doing. Now, we don't, we don't announce evacuations. That's obviously up to the local officials. Um, but we prepare our system. Uh, we have folks that will be deployed once a storm passes to do rapid impact assessment uh, on the ground, uh, flood you know, seeing where our flooded areas are, and we get all those teams ready so that as soon as the storm passes, we can deploy and start, you know, repairing any damaged pump stations, repairing any damaged flood control gates, uh, removing debris, uh, you know, vegetation that falls into our canals can greatly impede the conveyance of the system. So we get all of those pieces in place uh, and make sure that our redundant communications work so that we can continue to communicate during and after the storm. So if the National Hurricane Center forecasts 10 feet of storm surge coming this way, uh, does that, you know, is that a scary thing? Does the storm surge affect the, the system in a significant way? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the, the, the struggle that we go through, as you know, um, even a 50 mile shift in a storm, which doesn't, is not a lot can have a big mm -hmm. impact. So, you know, we look at storms approaching either the West Coast or the East Coast, because we have operations on both. And, you know, where, where the, we try to anticipate where the landfall of that storm will be, because some parts, one side of the storm will obviously create surge and the other side won't. We try to wait till the last possible moment that we can to figure out where that storm's gonna hit. And that's important because on the areas on the coast where we're gonna get surge, we have to uh, send our staff out to de-energize those structures, those gates. Because if the storm surge overtops where the generators are while it's energized, it, 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 it ruins mm -hmm. the structure. We, we, it just, it, the salt water gets in. So we have to make sure we time it so that our staff can get out there, de-energize and open the gates. We, we de-energize them 
and leave the gates open so that water can drain, but yet get them back in time, obviously, before there's 40 mile an hour winds or higher. So we want them to be safe. Um, you know, the storm shifts, <laughs> you know, 50 miles can make a big difference. Yeah. 10 miles uh, can make a big difference. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, you probably remember there's a, a pretty <clears throat> famous picture after Andrew uh, where there's a, a large boat on the side of a canal by a, a, a mansion or a big house that's on the coast. Yeah. Yeah. And down right, in um, near what well, today is Palmetto Bay or something down yes, in that area. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. And that structure, if you look, there's a very square looking thing. Yes. And that's one of our structures. Yes. I can picture it uh, very clearly. Yes. If you go back and look at that picture, mm-hmm. next to it, there's a, a concrete pad. It just looks like a concrete pad. There had been a, a building there oh. uh, that housed a generator mm-hmm. and a bunch of equipment, and it was completely obliterated by the storm surge. So that, that's kind of an extreme example, but the, 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 the storm surge, um, it, and I'll tell you, every storm that we get that approaches the coast, it's, it is a... It's one of the hardest decisions our water managers have to make about whether to, you know, de-energize or not de-energize and shut down that structure. We want to protect it because if we don't, if it's if it if it, you know, if, if the storm passes and the structure's fine, we'll go back out there, we'll hook it up, we can run it. Mm-hmm. But if if the salt water gets in, it, it's going to take a long time to get it back online again. It, it, I hope that makes sense. It's mm-hmm. kind of a. It a, does. Yeah, it's a it's a very delicate dance. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a storm surge, too. I mean, any time a hurricane's coming through, you've probably got a pretty big rain threat on your hand. How do you guys at the South Florida Water Management District know how much to lower the canals uh, with the rainfall portion of the hurricane? So, uh, so I, as I told you, we have two full-time meteorologists, and they are experts in tropical meteorology. And every day they produce, uh, whether there's gonna be a heavy rain or not, it's just every day is part of what they do. They develop uh, a QPF for the district um, that calculates or, or forecasts amount of rain, uh, how many days uh, and the areas. And our water managers, like I said, who are engineers, uh, take that information and do what engineers love to do, which is calculate. And um, they will look at that forecast and that rainfall over a certain basin, over a certain period of time represents a volume of water, cubic feet per second or whatever that may be. And the water managers will take into account other variables such as you know, how, how saturated is the ground, what is the water table, and they will use that information to determine how much the canals in that particular basin should be lowered. So um, it's, it's the forecast that our, our meteorologists do combined with, you know, some basins are kind of small, other basins are kind of big, um, and there's in between, and, uh, you know, what the current levels of the canals are. So they you know, they may decide to lower the canals, say, from 20 feet to 19, which one foot doesn't sound like a lot. But when you're talking about miles and miles and miles, uh, that can be a, a lot of water that we can receive. And so that that's kind of how they do it. They, they take the input from the meteorologists uh, and then use that as part of their calculation. It's, it's, it's volume of water, you know, and how fast it can move. So talking about your the uh, saltwater freshwater interface and the idea of, of trying to hold the saltwater off to the east so we keep the freshwater to the west and keep the Biscayne aquifer pure. In a, a big hurricane, saltwater could get pushed kind of pretty far inland, right? I mean, it could overtop the flood control uh, uh, infrastructure. I mean, it can cover the land. Uh, uh, in South Dade, extreme South Dade, south of the coastal ridge, south of Cutler Bay, salt water could go all the way across and into the Everglades. Uh, do you plan for, is there a plan for that? Or is that just one of those things that, you know, you have to, Mother Nature's going to do what, it, what it's going to do, and then you, you just have to do the best you can afterward? Because that seems like a huge threat. Well, yeah, and that gets a little bit to the timing that we were talking about earlier about 
where the storm lands and do we close the gates and do we open the gates? So, you know, it sounds kind of scary to say that the salt water gets pushed inland. And if the area is a, an area that the water managers have determined it would have been safer and better to leave the gate open, yes, there's a risk or th there's a possibility that that water, that salt water gets, you know, pushed up the canal. The good news kind of like what goes up must come down is you have a bunch of fresh water that's draining out of the secondary and the tertiary system into the system and kind of flushes all that salt water back out to tide. So it's not like it pushes it up and then it just stays there. Hmm. Uh, you know, once the, the flood control system has normalized and that water flows back out, then we can go back to you know operating our gates to make sure that that salt water stays out to the extent possible uh, to protect the well fields and the, the, the fresh water side of the ridge. So is that the so, biggest concern? I'm sorry, Beth, go ahead. No, that's fine. That, it's, it's a great question because it kind of sounds scary that the salt water comes in, but again, got a lot of fresh water going out too. <laughs> so it kind of you know flushes it back out. So is that the biggest concern with the hurricane? You know, is the big push of salt water coming inland or, or what is? So uh, the, the biggest concern for us is not so much that, because I think like we just talked about, you know, mother nature and physics and science will kind of do what it's gonna do. Our biggest concern is communications and our ability to see and collect data from our system. So we talked earlier about our SCADA system and why our infrastructure is so robust and, and why it's so automated. Our concern is making sure that we can always see what's going on with our system, always making sure that, you know, our towers are working, uh, you know, lightning strikes can sometimes throw things out of whack. Uh, you know, while we have tried to design our system to be as, as robust as it, it can be against high winds. You know, is it possible that wind could could do something that would make it difficult to, you know, operate and see the system? So, you know, the good news, uh, because the, the district's always trying to have not just a plan B, but a plan C, D, E, all the way through, is we are increasing our automation in this in built into the system so that even if we lost control or, or lost the ability to communicate or see from our headquarters the system has information that it will continue to operate as if you know it'll store that data of here's what my commands are here's what you know i'm the system is supposed to do with the structure and it'll continue to operate and, and we've been rolling out more and more of that automated technology to uh, our structures, and we're going to continue to do so. Um, but, you know, imagine driving down the road in your car and a tarp flies off the vehicle in front of you on your windshield. And you you can't see, you can't make decisions of do I do I hit the brakes? Do I swerve out of the way? So um, that's our, 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 I think, our biggest um, I don't want to say concern, but, you know, the, the thing that we, if you can't communicate and see what your system's doing, how do you make decisions? So sure. You're dead in the water. Yeah. So, yeah, so you, you know, we've had not here, but in other parts of the country in recent years, some big rain making hurricanes. We had Harvey in Houston. There was Florence. Uh, if we had something like that in South Florida, let's say maybe not 60 inches like they had in Houston, but let's say three feet of rain, a lot of rain, uh, and there was a major flooding event. You know, I'm thinking west of 95, west of the coastal ridge. That, that could be a big problem. How long would it take, do you think, for those flooded areas to drain plus or minus? What's the rule of thumb here? Any thoughts on that? So we designed the system for a three-day um, event, a, a one in 10 year event over three days. Um, you know, when you're talking about a hurricane, there's other variables that make giving a, a concrete formulaic answer to that difficult. So, you know, you could have a, a structure that gets damaged. 
doesn't flow water. You can have debris um, that falls in the canal. You know, it's very flat down there, so you know, I don't. It, it could take a while, a week, maybe longer. Um, you know, if the system's working really well, you know, it, it, I hate to just. I'm not trying to give you like a a generic or vague answer. But the reason I'm, I'm telling you this, explaining this, is in real life, what we've done when we've gotten questions like that uh, after Irma, and I'll just give you a real life example. Um, in Irma, in the central part of the state, I got a phone call from one of the county emergency managers, and they had terrible flooding in the Shingle Creek area. It was a head scratcher because it, it was worse than what they experienced in the 2004 hurricane season, which didn't make sense to them or us. Um, we didn't understand it. Uh, so part of our emergency operations center, and I, when you were asking about some of the teams, we have an emergency modeling team. And all they do is calculate the answers to the question that you just asked. So we deployed that team of folks to Central Florida to look at the flow of our structures, to go to Shingle Creek and talk to folks there and take measurements and look at what the flow rates were in some of the secondary drainage systems. And they calculated um, how long it would take for that area to drain. And I, I think uh, you know it was gonna be several days based on um, the amount of rainfall, the ground saturation, the ability to move water out of the system. And you know, for the area that you just talked about, we would approach it the same way. So you know, there are engineering specifications for the structures that it moves through, assuming that they're all working perfectly. But if they're not, so if a gate is damaged and only one out of three gates is working, that might impact how the water flows. So it could be a best case scenario where it flows through pretty quickly and maybe resolves you know, in a few days, uh, it could it could be longer. You know, a week, maybe two weeks, if if things aren't working up to snuff, and there's debris and ground and and water saturation. But that's that's kind of why we have the teams that we do, and we would work directly with the folks down there to give the emergency managers and the other emergency planners, you know, based on what's going on right now with our system and the other systems here's how long we think uh, a particular area might take to drain. So I, I, I hope that kind of answers or gives you some information or perspective of what we do. Um, emergency modeling is, uh, it's pretty fascinating and I, you know, I'm not an engineer, but how they take all those variables and can come up with um, how fast an area can take to drain or move water is one of the, uh, key functions that we do after a storm. Um, we did it in Naples, or excuse me, uh, Lee County uh, in, in during the Irma year when they had that very wet event happen uh, prior to Irma, we sent folks over there to do exactly that, to give them answers on how much, how long it would take in that particular circumstance to drain water. So. Some okay. years ago, I, I was working, um, I was on the, what's called the LMS committee, Local yep. Mitigation Strategy Committee at Miami-Dade County. And, and in fact, we funded one of those big pumps over by the Miami International Airport to pump the water. Uh, over. Uh, yeah, C4 on the yeah. C4 Canal, right. And, um, and I, as I recall, the discussion at the time was just nominally talking about West Broward, West Dade, uh, you know, out there, if it really flooded out there, that the water would go down about an inch a day, just as a broad statement. Obviously, like you say, if, if everything were working perfectly, maybe that took into account some kind of average failure rate and some, you know, in a hurricane or something like like that. Um, obviously, you're not going to, we're not talking about 10 feet of water uh, out there, but you could be easily be talking about a few feet of water. Right. You know, so you could be talking about, as you say, days to weeks, depending on, the specific neighborhood. So that's funny. I'm glad you brought that up because when I talked earlier about we have a couple of areas where we have pumps that force the, that's exactly that area and it was exactly because of that that event mm -hmm. uh, that the 
there was uh, federal money that came available. Right. That was in 1999 was Irene and then the no name storm in 2000. Uh, Both flooded the western, some part of the western parts of metropolitan Miami-Dade and Broward. And in a big way, I mean, it was a nasty, it was a nasty flood. So the idea was to take the water from the freshwater side, even at high tide, and pump it over the flood, the flood control structure so that you could be draining even at high tide and not have to wait for gravity to be able to take over, right? Right. And so remember, you know, we're, a lot of the structures and uh, the infrastructure that we're talking about here today was designed in 1949 or 1950s, you know, right. It's an eyebrow raiser. I get Uh you. So, you know, when we do capital improvement and we look at replacing or upgrading those structures, you know, obviously population and transportation and lots of things have changed climate. Um, we do level of service studies uh, with, the, with the local mitigation strategy folks. So we have representatives uh, from the district who sit on each of those committees. They represent mm-hmm. each, each county. And we try to, you know, when we have the opportunity to replace that structure and we look at what that lifespan of that structure could be. So, you know, 50, 75 year lifespan, maybe, um, you know, we try to anticipate for that. So, you know, do keep in mind or your listeners should keep in mind that you know, we're using, you know, we're using structures that were designed a long time ago and were designed to kind of drain the Everglades because that was what they thought they needed to do in 1950. But here we are trying to restore the Everglades using a plumbing system that was going to drain the Everglades mm-hmm. <laughs> while keeping the water table and the salt water, you know, so, um, it's there's a lot of moving pieces yeah well that's why to me that's why what what you guys do and what the south florida water management district does is so fascinating because it's so fundamental to life here and how life has evolved i mean the way this metropolitan area exists today compared to what it was in 1950 it's an entirely different place in character and and function and and everything else what we do with the land uh, where we used to grow oranges and strawberries and tomatoes, today we live on. So it's a and, exactly. and so we want a whole different thing to happen <laughs> with that land uh, on an average day. So uh, yeah. t- to me, that's amazing. So Beth, um, let's uh, um, we need to let you go because we need to move on. I know you do as well, and we really appreciate you uh, uh, being with us and and educating us a bit on on what the South Florida Water Management District does. Well, I appreciate it. I try to, these, the folks that work here are amazing. I, they're just, I try to give them a shameless plug for what they do anytime, any chance I get. So, um, I appreciate the time to, uh, to, to kind of preach about how awesome they are. (laughs) All right, Beth. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Have a great day. So look, it's a little spooky. I think that, uh, they're adjusting the water levels, of all these rivers and and canals uh, from some facility in West Palm Beach. I don't think most people knew that. Do you? I did not know that, not until today, but it sounds robust. I mean, with all the automation, all the systems that they have, it's, and she's talking about all the structures that are so well built. A lot of them take, you know, they're designed for Category 5 storms. Um, so it seems like this is a really well thought out organization and i wanted to ask her we ran out of time i wanted to know where are we vulnerable what can break here and uh didn't quite get to that but it does seem like it's a very robust system yeah although it it kind of is a testament to what a challenging place this is that we live in that we have to actually have a a, a complicated system like this to keep the water levels uh, where they're you know, not too high to flood, but not too low to let the salt water in to ruin the fresh water that we have to drink. And 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 you have canals every which way. And and I thought what she said at the end was really uh, important to understand. You know, when when South Florida was originally settled and actually kind of phase two. So around the turn of the 20th century, that was when this idea came around that, Okay, we need to have more developable land here 
because people indeed Miami was was going by then by the late nineteenth century, and but but in the wet season the water in in Miami would come up to Twenty Second Avenue more or less. All of that out there would flood out sure. past what was then the falls of the Miami River. There were actually waterfalls there, what? and it would flood. Yeah, the waterfalls were between 17th and 22nd Avenue on the Miami uh, River. There are actual photographs of the huh. of the waterfall there. So anyway, the, what they thought was, okay, we need to make this developable land. We need more land to build a bigger city. And the only way to do that was to control the water so that when you'd have a rainy season that all that land wouldn't flood. You see, you'd have all this dry land in the uh, in the wet season or in the dry season, and then you'd have flooded in, in a very rainy season. And they tried to do this up around Lake Okeechobee, and every time they tried to do it, it failed and everything got flooded out. They had all these towns that developed there, and then they got flooded out. Well, anyway, the governor came along, and Napoleon Bonaparte Broward came along, and he was the one that was finally the champion of let's dig the canals, drain the Everglades, control the water, and and that started in the early part of the century, and that's what made the city be able to expand. But the system was terrible for the Everglades because we disrupted all the natural flow of water that had gone on for millennia that, that uh, created this incredible ecosystem in, in the Everglades. So, you know, now we're trying to make up for the destruction that, that those original ideas caused, but manage a system that supports five or six million people and 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 stop it from flooding and keep the water fresh in the aquifer because the salt water is rising with sea level rise and is pushing harder on the freshwater aquifer. And so you have all these dynamics going on at the same time. So could Miami have been built without destroying the Everglades as we did? Well, I would be done if you were going to do it. You'd, uh, you'd do it a different way uh, now, I think. Well, a lot of things destroyed the Everglades. One of the main ones, um, separate from what happened here in Miami-Dade and Broward, but it happened up around the lake when they created all that farming south of the lake because the way the lake originally worked is when you'd have rain that would flow in central florida it would come down the Kissimmee river and other things that feed into the lake and the lake would fill up and it would just overflow the southern lip of the lake and create this very very slow moving river that marjorie stoneman douglas called the river of grass that went all the way down kind of due south across the everglades and then kind of hangs a right and goes off uh toward the intersection of the gulf and florida bay in the original flow and got to do with the topography and so forth and i used to know it's a, like an inch a mile or something that it goes down i mean it's maybe inch every 10 miles something anyway it's incredibly uh, gradual slope going to down to florida bay and so all that fresh water went down there and that made uh florida bay brackish and that created an ecosystem down there all based on brackish water. And then, but anyway, then when they put the farming up around Lake Okeechobee, they had to stop that water to make those farm fields. And that started the process of disrupting the flow of water. And it also was this tremendous source of pollution in the water and nutrients from the fertilizers and, and uh, so forth. So, so... You would have had to, you know, if you didn't have that farming issue, so you really wanted that water to continue to flow in the Everglades, I guess you would have to do it with some sort of a, uh, a different kind of, of flood wall and pumping system. And where you only did it, you know, you didn't try and control it all the way from the lake. You tried to control it uh, just along locally. the East Coast or something locally. Yeah, you'd have to do something different. I don't know. That's an interesting question, though. Interesting to some kind of uh, an engineer that uh, knows about these things uh, to talk about. So um, that's it for this week. Next week on the podcast, we're going to talk with Dr. Mike Brennan, the branch chief at the National Hurricane Center. So Mike runs the forecaster unit. He's one of the most knowledgeable people around about hurricanes and how the Hurricane Center handles various situations. We always learn a whole lot when Mike is on, and that'll be next Wednesday, assuming the tropics are under control, and that's a little bit open to question 
right now. But anyway, Mike will be our, our next guest. So until then, keep an eye on the tropics. We're not quite finished yet, uh, unfortunately. For Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross. Have a good week, everybody. Be well, stay safe, and please wear a mask. Thank you.